Hello everybody and welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I am your sometime host, Dan Fuller, joined today by another sometime host, Habib William Kerbeck. Welcome back. Thank you very channel, much, Will. Dan. Great to be back. Um, for those uh, regular listeners may remember that Will is the author of Techno Feudalism Rising, which is a fantastic kind of deep dive into the digital economy and taking quite some quite classical notions of space and applying it in really innovative ways to uh, kind of the digital economy and, and kind of even digital space that's kind of unfolding now. Um, how's everything going, Will? Uh, it's great. Well, you know, it's good and bad, ups and downs. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, if, if you're asking an economic question, it's not going very well. <laughs> uh, if you're asking a personal question, I mean, hey, I'm just down at the Wellington, had a Guinness, uh, it's a sunny day. Couldn't really be going much better. Excellent. And you've got a new monograph coming out soon, is that correct? Yeah, that's true. It's called Hyper Enclosure. It's coming out from the Zero X Salon in Berlin, and it'll be out in June. And it uh, it's sort of an extension of the ideas that are in uh, Techno Feudalism Rising, uh, considered within the, the Web3 world. And Web3 uh-huh. is what is being you know, frequently discussed in relation to the metaverse and things like that. But Web3 basically is an extension, a new form of... Uh, like the Web 2 paradigm. So the interactive web of Web 2 is now being extended to include online and offline spaces merging in certain ways and uh, and in so doing, the notion of enclosure and rent-seeking to economic concepts are particularly relevant. Really, really exciting stuff in in the world of the internet. Well, no, no, totally, yeah. I miss Web 1, personally. I kind of wish it would all go away, but that's, that's just me. <laughs> Um, and Will has done another uh, fantastic guest host slot for us uh, today, um, where he is interviewing the economist Steve Keen. Will, could you tell people a little bit about Steve before we dive into the interview? Of course. Um, so Steve, Steve Keen is uh, an economist, uh, a professor. He's taught at Kingston here. He's currently in Australia. He's actually standing for parliament there. But wow. I think I came into like awareness of his writing from a book called uh, Debunking Economics, which I read shortly after the economic crash of 2008. It was published around that time as well. And that's a pretty thoroughgoing debunking, literally, of the fundamental principles of what we think of as economics as a social science. He takes on uh, some of the most profound uh, assumptions that go into economic modeling, but also the nature of the, the basically the psychology of economics, basically mm. why and how uh, certain sorts of economic models are privileged over others and why certain sorts of assumptions are taken as, as acceptable uh, yeah. in a model and, not, and others are not. And so reading that, which is a really thoroughgoing work, uh, you know, it was real, it was an eye-opener for me and certainly a situation where it couldn't have come at a more opportune time in terms of the global events mm. to, to be asking those questions. And now the new book is uh, an an extension of some of those ideas, but also a, a kind of a model for a new kind of economics, uh, an economics that actually takes into account a lot of the stuff that debunking economics takes apart and, uh, you know, obviously criticizes. And, and why would you say this kind of program is important? Well, I mean, I think, and in, in the book gets into this, Keen's book gets into this, uh, we're living at a time when it's very clear that a lot of the models we live with are just patently inadequate to the moment that we're yeah. living through politically, structurally, scientifically, however one wants to look at it, we're living with old ideas that are not capable of leading us into the kind of world that we need to live in. And and so, you know, someone like Keane is is both, uh, you know, 
is someone who's who's capable of taking apart but also building up. And so actually having a model going forward, I mean, there are other economists who are really notable on this, Herman Daly, particularly The Steady State's a really interesting book, but like someone who actually has a program that could, you know, maybe you agree with it, maybe you don't, but it certainly offers ideas uh, that are really urgent because the current models are not working for reasons Keen adumbrates and other reasons, but certainly, uh, you know, the vision uh, of what the world looks like is one, uh, in the future is one of the, I think, real challenges people are having. I mean, you could think about um, Mark Fisher or somebody like this in discussing this, but it's it's particularly true in highly academized sciences like economics. So having that in the form of the, new, the manifesto that he's written is really, I think, valuable. Fantastic. Um, so without further ado, I'll pass over to Will and Steve for a deep dive into contemporary economics. I thought I'd start off with a quote uh, about economics, and uh, you know, given this is a bookish audience, um, I think they'll, yeah. they'll like a little bit of the, the historical context. So I'll start off with a quote from an economist you cite frequently in the book, uh, John Maynard Keynes, from his General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, 1936. Uh, he writes, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist, madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. Uh, I would ask you, Professor Keane, has anything changed? Unfortunately, no. I mean, that was one of the most beautiful lines in, in the book. I, Keynes can write like an angel, as, uh, as Jeff Hart, the late departed Jeff Harcourt uh, would say. Often he wrote very turgidly as well, but that's one of his angelic phrases. And it's enti entirely correct. The other one, which I, I, I frequently quote, is to say that uh, the difficulty is not so much in developing the new ideas as escaping for the old ones, which for those of us raised in the classical tradition ramify into every corner of our brains. And so that's the other side of it, uh, that the, the economists themselves are locked into this ancient way of thinking and can't break out of it. And that's why I've uh, you know, ultimately said, well, we simply have to break away completely. Uh, this, this paradigm that neoclassicals are wedded to, that politicians still swallow and regurgitate because they don't know any better, uh, is what I would basically call Ptolemaic. It's an Earth-centric vision of the universe uh, in the same way that Ptolemy's astronomy was. And just like Ptolemy's astronomy could accurately predict where the planets would be two or three centuries in advance, it was statistically reasonably accurate and completely unrealistic. And that, that we need to break away and have a, both a, a realistic uh, model as well as one which can give you that statistical accuracy. That's what I'm working on these days. On that subject, I would turn to your book, uh, The New Economics, A Manifesto. Uh, and um, one of the main targets of your book is neoclassical economics. And, uh, and obviously that is the dominant paradigm that we live in now. Um, but I'll, I'll read a quote from your book uh, just to give uh, a sense of where you're coming from in it. And then maybe if you could expand on it a little bit, you say, one would expect that the failure by economists to anticipate the biggest economic crisis of the post-Second World War world would, would cause economics to change dramatically, but it hasn't. Neoclassical economics was the dominant approach to modeling the economy before the global financial crisis, and it has remained dominant since. Could you give us a sense, Professor Keane, of what the neoclassical model teaches and how it differs from the Keynesian period that preceded it and why, why it's called neoclassical. Yeah, well, well the, Keynesian, the Keynesian period that preceded it wasn't Keynesian. This is one of the things which, uh, what I find is that economists, uh, the mainstream economists, don't only not understand the history of economics in general, they don't even know their own history. 
So uh, if you go back and say, well, what was called Keynesian economics uh, in the post-war period, it was really the economic model developed by John Hicks uh, in 1937 when he wrote what was supposed to be a book review of the general theory. Uh, and he opened that by saying that uh, Keynes's dunciad, as he called it, was unintelligible to most economists. And, uh, and, they, uh, and as Keynes himself said, the way that Hicks interpreted uh, Keynes was to say that it was contained uh, nothing uh, new that was right, and all that was right about it was the old stuff. Well, when you look at where Hicks actually developed his model, and Hicks later admitted this for a, a paper he published in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics in 1981-82, um, was that the model, the, the ISLM model, which was taken as being distilling the essence of Keynes's general theory, was in fact developed by Hicks in 1935, when he wrote a paper called Wages and Capital, The Dynamic Problem. And when he wrote the what he called a review of Keynes, what he was really doing was writing down his own model uh, of a uh, being able to model a three uh, a model of a three three market economy by leaving out one of the markets with the assumption that if the other two are in equilibrium, the third has to be in equilibrium as well. This is basically Volra's law. So, what was the technical apparatus of the so-called Keynesian period was a Volrasian model of the economy which is not at all Keynesian. Now, the difference was that for that uh, period from the uh, early post-war, for the late 40s through to the middle 60s and so on, was that there was an acceptance for a large role of government. So you had larger deficits than are accepted now, no outright complaints about the level of a deficit and so on. And uh, politically, at least in the very early period, uh, a, a realisation that you had to do something worthwhile for the working class because the Great Depression and, uh, and the Second World War that was a consequence of the Great Depression in many ways screwed the working class, uh, screwed the working man, and you had a real danger that in the post-war period there'd be a very strong appeal for communism. So rather than suppressing workers' unions uh, and, and trying to keep wages low, there was a belief that workers had to share in the growth of the economy as well. So that was what was distinctive about the so-called Keynesian period. Uh, and then, of course, since uh, uh, the, uh, the stagflation period in the 70s, that all got thrown out. We've forgotten the political reasons behind the egalitarian elements of that period. And you had rampant neoclassical economics ever since. And, and, and these, the, the fundamental idea is the market is always right. You know, the market, not only will the market give you equilibrium, which is the you know, continuing belief in neoclassical economists, it will also give you a correct income distribution because without government intervention and if you can happily involve uh, abolish trade unions as well and maybe you do something about monopolies at some point, uh, what you will get is the wage will be equal to the marginal product of labour and the rate of profit will be equal to the marginal product of capital, so everybody gets paid what they deserve. So it's a meritocratic vision of income distribution. Now that's bollocks in compared to the real world. Uh, the, you know, the real world, and this is what I'm trying to explain in the, the New Economics uh, a Manifesto, uh, any living system, any evolutionary system is far from equilibrium. You don't even get near it. Uh, and that's a good thing. The, an economy the dynamism of economy comes from its non-equilibrium characteristics. So I'm getting a bit long-winded here, so I'll, I'll, I'll let us come back to your question again. But the neoclassical vision uh, has taken over ever since 
the stagflation period of the 70s. And this is a vision of the economy which is as accurate as the Ptolemaic vision of the, of the solar system. It works for a while and then it falls apart. And that's where we are now. Okay, that, that, that's a really good uh, distillation of it. Uh, one of the things I think that your book does such a good job and also debunking economics does such a good job of, of illustrating is so much that's left out of the, the neoclassical model through um, various uh, normalizations or various sort of simplifications. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the key things so that you know, listeners who are not um, coming from an economics background uh, can understand like, you know, how unreal uh, a lot of the modeling that goes into uh, neoclassical modeling has been, particularly, you know, the leaving out of things like banks, the, uh, mm, the yeah. treatment of particular commodities as equal, even though they're not. Um, could you maybe just give a little bit of a sense of some of the key things that are left out so that people can get a sense of why there needs yeah. to be a new model? Yeah, well, like, probably the starting point is if you, you wanted to symbolize, if you wanted an icon to symbolize neoclassical economics is intersecting supply and demand curves. A rising supply curve, so the higher the, uh, the output level, the higher the price demanded by uh, producers, and then the f a declining demand curve, so the um, higher the quantity, the lower the price that the uh, consumers demand, and then you reach this happy equilibrium where the two lines intersect. All of that is bullshit. Uh, and and the one that I'm actually when, when I I will be writing a third edition of debunking economics. I have to start that in, in at least in the next two years, and I'll be starting it with a supply curve because there's this incredible amount of empirical data where economists either asked uh, industrialists what their cost structures actually were, or went out and examined the factories and, and tried to work it out that way. And what you find is universally, industrialists report that their marginal costs fall rather than rise with output. Whereas an essential part of the revision of a rising supply curve is that it's not rising input costs that are causing your prices to rise. They assume that you, got, you, know, you pay the same wage whether you've got a small factory or a large one. Uh, what they presume was there'd be diminishing marginal productivity. So you'd be adding more and more variable inputs, which is labor, to a fixed amount of capital, and you'd go past an ideal point and start having a lower productivity out of each additional worker you added to these now overcrowded machines. Now, no engineer with their, with their, with their head screwed on designs a factory like that. Fact, engineers design factories so they reach their maximum productivity at maximum uh, employment. And you do not experience diminishing marginal productivity in a real-world factory. That's a fantasy of economists. So what you do when you, when you research it, this means, well, rather than the cost of producing each additional, the variable cost of each additional unit rising with volume, it falls with volume. And then your fixed costs, which is a sensible idea, you build a factory, there's a production lines inside and so on, uh, those costs are amortised over the output. Your fixed costs are falling per unit as well. So you combine falling unit fixed uh, unit costs and then also constant or falling variable costs, you have a declining, not a rising supply curve. So their explanation for equilibrium goes out the window. Uh, demand curve, same sort of story. They, they drive a model of an individual consumer who rationally uh, re reduces their consumption as prices rise of each commodity. And there's all these, you know, you know, uh, gymnastics around what they call indifference curves and deriving that individual's you know, demand curve. But that presumes that the uh, changing the relative prices doesn't affect the income of the consumer. 
Now, when you look at an entire, if you look at a, a market, if you want to work at a market demand curve, you necessarily have to include the income of every consumer in that economy. And if you do that, then uh, some of the people who uh, are buying the commodity whose price you're varying are also producers of that commodity. And you get a feedback effect between supply and uh, the, uh, the, the price level and the income. Um, and what that means is, and this is done mathematically by leading neoclassical mathematical economists, the demand curve that you can derive logically from varying prices in a way that also varies incomes can have any shape that you can fit with a polynomial. So rather than a downward sloping curve, it can be anything you like. And that's not saying real-world demand curves, if they exist or anything like that. It's just showing that the theory itself can't derive an essential part of its a paradigm, which is this downward sloping demand curve. So you get supply curves which slope down, demand curves which can slope, slope like, like, you know, like a, almost like a piece of spaghetti thrown on the, on the ground. You can't get equilibrium out of the theory itself. But they gloss all over that. They ignore it. Uh, you'll, you'll see it discussed in PhD texts like, uh, um, what's his name? I've forgotten the, the author, Mantell. No, 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 hang on, Mantell. I've forgotten the actual... Um, the leading, one of the leading neoclassical texts, but they'll leave it out. Varian doesn't even discuss it, for example. So they, 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 they have all these points where there's a logical conundrum, and they jump right over it with some absurd assumption, and then continue on as though they've still got a sound foundation. And the result is what people think is an extremely well worked out, soundly based theory to analyze capitalism is strewn with with logical contradictions that mean it simply can't be applied even in the model, let alone to the real world. That's a very good point. And one of the things that you also bring up in the book that's um, particularly interesting is the, it, the statement by Milton Friedman about you know, the more unrealistic uh, economic assumptions, yeah. the more effective the model might be, which is uh, perhaps somewhat insane, but, uh, or at least it seems that way to an ordinary person. Um, but one of the things that the book also does really well is highlight the relationship between economics and power. And of course, political economy is how the word enter the lexicon. Economics is a shortening of political economy and like highlighting the political dimension and power is a key aspect of the book. And I was just wondering if you'd maybe speak a little bit about, um, you know, how bringing that into the discussion of economics, bringing that political dimension, bringing that power dimension in changes the way both models work, but also just the, the practical realities of economics, the mm -hmm. ideological component. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, ba the basic, basic, the basic point is that the reason, let's go back to the theory of demand and why that falls over, the idea of the, the, the starting point of the neoclassical model is this isolated individual. So you're not a part of a social class, for example. And therefore, uh, you, your theory of de demand doesn't include the distribution of income. Well, that's why you, you can't get a downward sloping demand curve out of it, because you don't have the ingredient that changing prices changes relative incomes. Uh, in, in, in the actual foundation. So once you say, well, that's wrong, and, and therefore um, the, uh, the wage is not set by the marginal product of labour, it simply can't be mathematically, even within the theory, that means that the wage really affects relative power. So even from that point of view, you can no longer have this sort of cost-benefit analysis. So if you say, if we add up all the numbers and the, and the, ch the change you know, has more benefits than cost than it's worth doing, you've got to now say, what's the distribution of income? You can't leave that out. So like a, a lot of people think that economics are shrills for the capitalist class, but that's just not true about their actual nature. Some of them are. I mean, I, I wouldn't accuse Laurie Sammers of not being a shrill, uh, but, but uh, 
but most of them genuinely believe they're doing good for society as a whole. And what they are is not shrills for capitalism, they're zealots for their model of capitalism. And that's actually worse, because if you're a shrill, I can, you know, I'll only pay you more money and you'll change your tune. But if you actually believe something as deeply as most neoclassical economists believe this paradigm, you are like a, a mullah, a religious mullah. And you will do stuff which ends up destroying society because you believe you're making society better. So your ideology, um, which you think is a science, leads you into destroying capitalism. And that's really, that comes back to your quote about uh, Milton Friedman and the, the moral uh, uh, ridiculous the assumptions, the better the theory. By the way, you'll notice if you read the original paper, footnote 12 there says this does not imply the opposite, that an unrealistic assumption will give you a better theory. He covered himself there. But of course, nobody reads footnotes apart from me. So they don't actually read that. And this is where I think some of the, they, they justify making, you know, clinically insane assumptions to jump over logical conundrums. So that's, that's the, the, the problem. They first of all believe they've got a vision of a perfect world. And then when they try to work out the mathematics and reach a conundrum, they think, oh, we can just use Milton Friedman. The more ridiculous the assumptions, the better the theory. So like my favorite in that of all time, probably, is from Paul Samuelson in 1956. He realized this dilemma about not being able to derive a downward sloping market demand curve from individuals with downward sloping individual demand curves. His solution was to say that uh, when you try to aggregate, we can at least aggregate to the family level because we can assume all American families are happy families and they get together and reallocate the income within themselves so that they have a, a, a family demand curve which respects the ethical worth of each person's input into the family. Now, goodbye Dallas, you know, there's no such thing as an American family that doesn't like itself or, you know, shoots other families. Uh, and he says, we only have to assume the same mechanism at the national level. Give me a fucking break. This is mean you're assuming you've got a benevolent dictator who redistributes income. Now, as insane as that is, that turns up in Maskell. That's the textbook whose name I was trying to think of for a while. And it actually says that the demand curve uh, has to reflect a, a redistribution of income prior to exchange by a benevolent central authority, perhaps. So here we have in supposedly the theory of capitalism, the assumption of the existence of a benevolent dictator. And you think this is how mad this stuff is. But what that gives them is this sort of perfect mechanistic vision of how capitalism operates, which is so seductive that they fall for that and they operate as zealots rather than genuine scientists. And that I think has led us probably to the brink of the extinction of capitalism at the hands of neoclassical economists. Yeah, well, the basic way that neoclassicals handle environmental issues, they treat them as externalities. So the idea is if, if, if we had property rights for everything, like property rights for fresh air and property rights for clean water and so on, then the owners of the air and the owners of the, the water would uh, charge for the use of the, uh, 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 the air and the water, and any pollution you did was also be charged back to the user. So everything would be hunky-dory. That's why we, uh, you know, Nordhaus's vision is to bring in carbon pricing, get the get the get the cost of carbon, the social cost of carbon, right. Uh, add that into you know, using some regulations, you make up for the market failure, and hey presto, there's no environmental damage. That's nonsense uh, because it's leaving out the role of energy, and nothing can be reduced without energy. So my my positive contribution to this debate came out of 
finally working out how we can bring energy into the theory of production. And if you look at neoclassical theory and post-Keynesian for that matter, they both leave energy out. You talk about uh, like the, the Cobb-Douglas production function, which is the, the uh, toy du jour of the neoclassical economists. That argues that output is technology times labor raised to one power times capital raised to one minus that power. And uh, you then set the uh, exponents there so you get constant returns to scale. So if you double all inputs, you double output. That's a reasonable assumption. But what it says is you can produce output using labor and capital in this amorphous thing called technology alone. Now, when they, when they bring in energy, they say, well, let's add energy in as the third factor of production. And what exponent do we use for energy? Well, we just use the same we use for labor and capital. The exponent for labor reflects the fact that labor gets about 70% of income and we have capital getting 30%, we bring in energy as well. We say, well, the exponent for capital is now 25% and the exponent for energy is 5%, which pretty much reflects the size of the energy sector in the economy. Uh, and therefore, on that model, if you have a 10% fall in energy input, you'll only get a 0.4% fall in GDP because the producers will substitute labor and capital for energy. And that's literally quoting a very recent neoclassical working paper. Uh, when you say what, what I what I realized, and this just came out of the blue walking through uh, Robert, uh, uh, hang on, I'm Bob's eye. Uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting names here. He's a good mate of mine. But okay. Um, but anyway, walking through a friend's house, it was a, one of the leading people trying to bring energy into production. It was full of sculptures. And I had this little instant thought, labor without energy is a corpse, capital without energy is a sculpture. So rather than energy being a third factor of production, Bob Ayres it was, Robert Ayres, A-Y-R-E-S, uh, does most of the work on energy um, in economics. So rather than energy being a third factor of production, it's an input to labor and capital without which they can do no work. Now when you feed that into a Cobb-Douglas production function, what you get is rather than the exponent for uh, for energy being 0 0.05, it has to be at least 0.3. And then when you bring in, uh, in cross-country uh, cross data to try to fit cross-country data, as Mankiw found out when he did this back in 1995, and quite a good paper, I want a paper I quote regularly by Mankiw, he found that to fit the data, your exponent for capital couldn't be 0.3, it had to be 0.8. We feed that that's also the exponent for energy. So now suddenly now a 10% fall in energy input will mean a 9% fall in GDP, and that's more serious. And I take it through to the Leontier production function and say there's pretty much a one-for-one -one relationship between change in energy and change in GDP. What that all means is if we face a need to suddenly reduce our consumption of carbon, if we have a you know, obviously, obviously undeniable climate change catastrophe, like something that wipes out a country rather than wiping out a town. Uh, then, then we sort of simply realise, holy shit, this carbon is serious stuff. We've got to stop producing it. Uh, we will then have an 80% fall in energy. And that would mean an 80% fall in GDP. So it's absolutely drastic. Uh, that, and this, funnily enough, this is one time I don't blame neoclassicals. I actually blame Adam Smith for this mistake. We should have included energy right from the very output. In economic modeling. It's crazy not to have it there. We don't even include raw materials. Crazy not to have them, them there. That's because when Smith developed the wealth of nations, he took the opening line of the physiocrats, which was to say that land is the source of all value, and changed it to labor. Now, the physiocrats were right. 
in, in a sense, what they were seeing was land as the material that absorbed the energy from the sun. And they had, therefore they had energy in their thinking about production, even before the word energy was invented. And with, with Smith sidelining it and saying it's labour and division of labour, we then got the whole classical, neoclassical Marxist debate over where value comes from. And that, I think, led to this nonsense uh, in the, of, of trying to model production without energy. And therefore, we're walked by, blindfolded by economists into the beginning of an ec ecological catastrophe. I think that's very, very well put. Um, with regard to this question of looking ahead, um, you know, obviously your book is a manifesto, so there's a, a political dimension to uh, to what you're wanting to say, a kind of polemic dimension. Obviously, we've had a sense of what you know what needs to be corrected about the about the neoclassical models. I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the formulation of the new economics uh, of which uh, the book takes its title. Uh, you know, what do you envision the new economics as? How do you imagine it manifesting? Obviously, there's a technical component with economists apply, applying new models and new um, academic programs, but what does it mean practically? How would uh, how would it um, you know how would it manifest in the world? Well, the first thing is throwing away the hang-up on equilibrium. The the reason that the uh, precursors of neoclassical economics, the founders, uh, Valras, Jevons, Menger, and Marshall, the reason they used equilibrium because they realised they couldn't model in dynamics. They didn't have the techniques at the time. So Jevons actually said, uh, if we wanted to give a complete answer, we would, of course, make this a problem of dynamics. But... Uh, why should we wait for the more difficult uh, approach when the simpler one is is, is yet so uh, much easier within our grasp? So they use statics and equilibrium thinking rather than dynamics, and they expected what was going to happen in the ninth in the twentieth century would their their successors would develop dynamic methods. Now neoclassicals call their models dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models these days, but generally speaking, they're neither dynamic nor general. They're 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 static equilibrium models. Uh, of changes from one equilibrium situation to another. They've got nothing to do uh, with genuine dynamics. So we have to have dynamics, non-equilibrium thinking, and that's we've now got the technology for that. It's called system dynamics. So system dynamics would be an essential foundation of the new economics. Secondly, it has to be based on energy. So you therefore, uh, you're looking at uh, your system. What, what, the, what the economy really does is transform free energy into useful useful energy, transform uh, unprocessed materials into useful materials for us, and it necessarily creates waste. So as soon as you look at energy as the foundation, you necessarily have waste. And by the second law of thermodynamics, and what you could see as a simile for that in materials as well, you can't generate output with useful stuff without generating waste, damaging stuff. And again, uh, the, the waste, again, by the laws, by the law of entropy fundamentally, has to exceed the useful side of things. So you would necessarily have an economics tied up with ecology. And that's, of course, in, a, in an essential sense, completely missing from neoclassical economics. With their model, if you, uh, you know, set the external prices right, there is no waste. Well, that's bullshit. Uh, we, we, we start from energy, waste, non-equilibrium, and finally it has to be monetary. So neoclassicals, okay, non-economists think economists must be experts on money because isn't economics about money. They don't realise that way, way back in their first year training, they learn uh, what's called the money illusion and show that if they double all prices and double incomes, nothing changes. Therefore, money is not important. And all the neoclassical economics leaves out the monetary system completely. And that's why they have no understanding of how government money is created and how credit affects aggregate demand and so on. So we have to have a monetary foundation 
for economics as well. And that's why I built my Minsky software, because that, with what I call its godly tables, lets you build uh, a, a very a completely consistent model of the financial flows of a capitalist economy using double-entry bookkeeping. So that's non-equilibrium, energy-based, uh, necessarily ecologically founded because of, of the role between useful energy, useful work and waste, uh, and monetary. And that's all doable now. It's only the neoclassical hangover that ignores all these issues that's preventing us from that being the nature of modern economics. That's really interesting. Um, I would also just uh, to listeners, I would, I, would, I would definitely say for listeners to uh, investigate the Minsky software if you have any curiosity, because if you have, an, it's, I should say it's named after the American economist, Hyman Minsky, um, but it's, it's, an, it's an element that you bring into the book that allows for participatory component if you want to experiment with some of the ideas that are in, in the book. Uh, what, what prompted you to, uh, to include this, uh, this software dimension to the book so that in making it interactive, is it something, I mean, obviously it's something that has a, uh, a component that allows you to reach out, but I'm also wondering if it's, uh, if it's something that you've been, you've been working on for quite a while and hadn't found necessarily a vehicle until you were able to compose the manifesto. Yeah, I mean, I, I one thing I did before I became an academic, I was actually a, a computer software um, re reviewer for a, a couple of magazines. And so I got to see every last software package I wanted to see. I, I could literally ring up a company and say, I'd like to take a look at your database, software thanks, and there'd be a truck delivering it four hours later. So I got this enormous uh, exposure to software, far more than most economists get. And that's where I learned about system dynamic software and uh, analytic software like what are called OLAP databases and so on. So I realized just how primitive economics was in terms of the software it uses. I mean, the, ma the main package economists use is called eViews, and there's another one called GAMS, and they're such primitive pieces of equilibrium nonsense uh, that I said, we, we have to, if we're going to break economists away from equilibrium, we have to give them a tool that lets them handle non-equilibrium easily, and money as well, of course. So I'd use... Um, System dynamics programs like I think Stella, Vensim, uh, and, and Simulink, and in the engineering field, and one called VizSim, and all of them except one, which is VizSim, were really awkward. I thought they were badly designed. Uh, so I like what I saw in terms of VizSim's uh, way of modelling uh, dynamic systems. Uh, but there was when I tried to model my financial uh, models, my models of money creation, based on the work of Wynne Godley and also Augusto Graziani. I simply found I couldn't get all the flowcharts right. So I'd work with Wynne Godley when I was writing the first edition of Debunking Economics. I did that. The uh, I wrote most of the book in the um, the Bard, the, the uh, Levia uh, Institute on Bard College, and I was actually working in Hyman Minsky's room. And my next door neighbour was Wynne Godley, L wonderful, lovely, lovely man, and of course highly highly innovative as well. And he was using this old-fashioned a DOS program with, with double tables for entries. And that's where I got the idea for the godly tables from. So I, I realized I could add this uh, double entry bookkeeping vision to the flowchart vision of uh, the system dynamics used. And I borrowed the best ideas from VizSim in terms of uh, how the flowcharts work because with most of the conventional software, uh, to make one vari variable depend upon another variable, you had to wire them all up. And the wires everywhere, and even practitioners in system dynamics refer, refer to their diagrams as spaghetti diagrams. And of course, you know, you try to read a bowl of spaghetti. It's just impossible. So 
it becomes incomprehensible to anybody except the person who developed it, which goes against the whole idea of communicating the structure of a model. So in building Minsky, I was both trying to bring in double-entry bookkeeping to make it really easy to model financial dynamics. It also works for epidemiology, by the way. Uh, and with the flowchart, I wanted to minimise the clutter that occurred with standard system dynamics programs. So Minsky provides both those. It's still very primitive. We've only had about half a million US dollars investment in it, uh, partly a, a grant for, from the Institute for New Economic Thinking, or INET, got us started, and I got a second grant from Friends Provident Foundation in the UK that enables us to polish it quite a bit. But it still had a trivial amount of money devoted to it, so I would love people to sign up to its Patreon page, provide some community support, and I just hope over time to raise enough finance to make that as swish as I would like it to be, because I think the, the replacement for the supply and demand diagram, to me, is going to be a Minsky model. And that's my ambition. Okay, great. Well, that really, that really gives a, a sense of, of mission, I think, to, to readers as well as to uh, as well as the, uh, listeners to the podcast. Um, what I, uh, so we've been speaking a lot about, um, about the, the book and, of course, the academic, uh, sorry, speaking about the book and the like, intellectual background and framework against which it was developed. But I was wondering, we'll conclude here with just two other questions. And one is, and they're more of a personal nature. I was wondering what got you, you know, what, what gave you that moment of realizing there were so many problems with neo, uh, neoclassical economics? What, what prompted you to start investigating and taking apart what we think of as conventional economics? Well, I've got to thank uh, one of my lecturers, Frank Stilwell at Sydney University. I actually had uh, lunch with Frank about oh, a month or so ago and gave him a copy of uh, the New Economics and Manifesto. Frank, like what often happens with someone is you'll, you'll learn neoclassical economics, you'll believe it, and then you'll find some logical holes. And there's two ways you can proceed when you find a logical hole. Either you paper over it in your mind and ignore it and try to make it go away, or you think, holy shit, there's something logically wrong here, and what else is there out? What else can I find? So um, that happens for a, you know a tiny minority. Maybe, maybe uh, looking at the percentage of economists which who are non-orthodox in academic centres, the best indicator I've seen is when the French, uh, what they call uh, uh, appalled economist society, tried to form a, a breakaway division. They there were the French system registers every academic in every discipline. They knew there were 1,800 academic economists in France and 300 of them wanted to join the new division. So that applies about one in six a breakaway. Um, so my particular moment of inspiration came from Frank uh, in a first-year lecture explaining what's called the theory of the second best to us. And he used the example of uh, a, a, a employer association facing off against a trade union to set the wage. Now, the, the neoclassical vision, you have competitive firms on, as buyers of labour and workers as competitive sellers, and you get equilibrium, and equilibrium point is where the wage equals the marginal product of labour. But if you say, well, there's actually, if you say trade unions, what that then argues is the, there's uh, the, uh, the, you, your, your supply curve is called the, called the marginal social product, and you therefore restrict demand and set a higher wage, and that's really, really bad, according to neoclassical theory. But if you're also facing a monopoly supplier, a buyer of labour, then you have a marginal product curve coming into it, and that gives you a different point of intersection. Put the two together, and what you've got is a gap between, and this is using standard neoclassical theory, you've got a gap between the maximum going to the workers and maximum going to the capitalists, and there's effectively a bargaining will set the real wage. Uh, 
Now, what 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 um, Frank illustrated is, and this is where the theory of the second best comes in, if you remove one or other element, but not both, so if you get rid of the monopoly or you get rid of the trade union, according to neoclassical theory, you reduce social welfare. And I remember learning that in a first-year lecture and thinking, holy shit, that means that if you wanted to reach this nirvana of, you know, the everybody getting their marginal products. You couldn't just get rid of trade unions, which is very much an attitude of neoclassical economists. You'd also have to abolish monopolies simultaneously. And I thought, that's nonsense. That's not a description of what you can do in the real world. There's got to be something wrong with this theory. And I checked my textbook. There was no mention of the theory of the second best there. You normally only learn that in an honours class or a PhD class. So I went down to the library and I thought, what else am I not being taught? And the most recently bound volume of the, uh, the economic journal, which I hadn't even looked at a copy at this stage, I relied on my textbook, included uh, a paper by Paul Samuelson called A Summing Up. And in that, he explained how the neoclassical side had lost a debate over the nature of capital. And I thought, where's this in my textbook? It's not in my textbook. So that point was at a point of incredible disillusionment, realising I was being bullshitted to by the textbooks, even if the authors didn't realise that's what they were pumping out. And I began to investigate the theory from that point on, turned away from the textbook, read the journals, found the capital controversy debates, found all the, the existence of Marxian economics, didn't know that even existed. And then, of course, the beginning of post-Keynesian economics with the work of Paul Davidson and so on. So this was when I was 18. And that uh, gave me one hell of a head start over my contemporaries in that sense. Um, I'd, I'd rather than breaking away as Frank had done when he's in his mid-twenties while doing his PhD, I broke away as a first-year undergraduate student. Okay, so that's a, that's a really good background. And then, obviously, just to sort of conclude here, um, you know, you mentioned a lot of great economic writers in the book and, um, you know, new thinkers and innovative minds. And I was just wondering, because, of course, it is, uh, it is a bookshop, we were wondering if there are any economics books that, you, that really inspired you or you that are out now that you're really excited about reading. Yeah, well, the, the one that I think was probably the, the best, um, the deepest book that I read, I mean, I'd, I'd love, for example, Jan Craigle wrote a book called The Reconstruction of Political Economy, and that was great, but Jan used arithmetic for his example, so I, I converted it across to algebra, and that was a major part of my early work. I was building models of Joan Robinson's golden age economy at that stage. Uh, but I always thought economists would have to be using differential equations because this is what that's the basic tool of an engineer. You use differential equations to explain any dynamic system. And economists simply don't use them on any, any sophisticated level. Uh, so I went looking for something and I, on, on that front, and I was introduced, I don't quite remember how I found it, but a book by a mathematician, John Blatt, called Dynamic Economic Systems, a Post-Keynesian Approach. Now, I wrote that book and I absolutely loved it. And as part of it, in one of the chapters, he mentioned Goodwin's model of cyclical growth and said that you could extend this model by bringing in, for example, the finance sector. And at the same time, I'd been, I was reading Hyman Minsky's work, and I realised that Minsky had tried to build a model of his, a mathematical model, of his financial instability hypothesis, and what he'd used was the Hicks, Hansen, Samuelson multiplier accelerator model. Now, I already knew, having done plenty of mathematics, that, that was a math, it was a mathematically invalid model. Okay? It, it was actually a model of a... Of a which only had the trivial equilibrium. Zero, zero was the only solution to the model. Uh, so I knew he'd done badly then, and I used Blatt's idea 
uh, Goodwin's model and built my, my model of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. Uh, but what this, the story behind Blatt is really quite fascinating. I learned this after I'd became exposed to the book, and that is that Blatt was professor of mathematics at New South Wales University, and a man who is still a, somebody I like and admire as a human being, Murray Kemp, was professor of economics, and both of them had been nominated for Nobel Prizes, Murray for economics, obviously, and international trade theory, and John for physics, but they hadn't got it. But Murray therefore regarded John as his only true peer at New South Wales University, and he invited John Blatt to come along to a seminar. Now, Blatt, if you actually go to New South Wales University's site and, and find a, a biography of Blatt, you'll find him described as a notoriously difficult personality uh, who would say exactly what he felt about anybody in any situation. He, had, he, was, a, he, was, a, he was a pianist, he was a, a brilliant man all round, but uh, politeness wasn't one of his characteristics. So anyway, Murray invited John along to a seminar in international trade theory. Murray gave one of his typical Hechsler-Oland extended models of international trade. And when he finished, asked over the top of the audience of what John thought. I'm going to do my best attempt, I've heard this story several times and several people are, and Blatt was Austrian by birth. And he then said, that is the greatest road of rubbish that I have ever sat through. And if this is what passes for advanced economics, there's something seriously wrong with economics, and I intend finding out what it is. Good day. <laughs> and he then devoted the next three years of his life to reading economics, going right back to the, the physiocrats and reconstructing all of it from the point of view of a one of the world's great mathematicians. And that's and then he, to make it palatable to economists, he separated the mathematics into appendices for each chapter. And they had a, a very good verbal explanation. He was a brilliant teacher uh, of you know growth theory, uh, multi-sectoral analysis, some work on money as well. And I think that's brilliant. And I for ages, I was giving people copies of the PDFs of the book and then found just recently, maybe the fact that I've been promoting it so much has helped, it's been republished by Routledge. So you can now buy it physically or electronically, and the electronic rendition is superb, no hassles with the equations. And that's the book I'd recommend. If you're going to read my, uh, after reading my manifesto, if this stuff is new to you, get a copy of John Blatt's Dynamic Economic Systems. Great. And anything new? Anything new that's coming out that you're really excited about? Oh, well, I mean, a lot of my friends are writing very... I mean, Kate Raworth's work on donut economics, for example, that's that's important. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm trying to find is an analytic foundation. And uh, in that sense, it looks like that's my job. So... Um, I know, I've got people like Matthias Griselli, for example, who's a mathematician at McMaster University, has done superb work taking my models and extending them. Uh, Gail Girard, uh, who's down at uh, Washington University these days, he's another one that's doing similar work. I've got colleagues who are ex-colleagues of mine at Kingston who are now working for the French Development Agency, building huge uh, nonlinear differential equation models of, of developing economies. So there's lots of work being done around, but in terms of aggregating everything, doing effectively what John did, but bringing it up to date. Uh, it looks like that's going to be my job. So when I finish writing this, the third edition of Debunking Economics, uh, which will be published by Castellia House, by the way, uh, once I finish writing that, and I hope to finish that, if I'm lucky, by the end of 2023, uh, then I'll start working on my magnum opus. And, and I regard, by the way, the manifesto as my mini opus. Um, and that, that will be titled... Uh, principles of political economy and ecology. 
That sounds like a fascinating read. I, I can't wait to experience it. Well, I just want to conclude by saying thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor King. We really do appreciate your speaking with us here at Burley Fisher. Look, thank you. It's been a great interview, and it's uh, nice to have somebody who's read my work so thoroughly. And uh, just to say, the book, uh, The New Economics Manifesto, is published by Polity, and it is, of course, available at Burley Fisher Books. <laughs>